0: We're continuing in our series on this great mystery. And last week, we talked about what the great mystery was. And, um, and so this week, we, we continue because what Paul's doing is he's going to unpack this. Starting next week, he's going to switch. He's going to switch from saying, this is the great mystery. These are the, this is our great and awesome Christ. This is the salvation that was won for you. This is the incredible unity that should result and then in chapter 4, he's going to say, and this is how it's going to take place. This is what it looks like. But before we get there, we have, we have the last bit of, of, um, of chapter 3. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about, you know, how do I illustrate this point? And, and uh, I don't know why. Maybe I was just being nostalgic uh, but they. Uh, but I was thinking about um, the toys that when I was a kid that I really wanted when I was a kid, and we have pictures of the toys. You know, one was this uh, flintlock rifle. Now I didn't know you could actually have a real one. You know, so I just wanted the one that shot. You know, you remember caps? You know, p- people old enough to remember. You know, you put the put it in there and you shoot it. and I could be Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, um, whatever. It was good fun, and and that's what I wanted. And I would. You know, my parents didn't have a lot of money, and so, you know, I would tell my parents, but tell my parents without any real hope, but my grandparents, they always wanted to get us something we wanted. So, this was always on my list, flintlock rifle. Another one was this, this figure that, you know, this was it's not a doll, it's an action figure. Um, <laughs> and his, his name was Johnny West. I don't know if you guys remember Johnny West. It was just, you know, something on the mainland, but, um, but you know, again, was one of those things. You know, people wanted GI Joes, and I didn't mind GI Joe. But you know, Johnny West was the coolest uh, for me. Maybe because I was growing up in Oklahoma. You know, I thought thought more highly of cowboys. But the one that I really, really wanted, and I would ask for every year, and I finally got one when I was about seven or eight years old. It was an, an official NFL football. Now, if you knew me back then, I was like a I was like a football fanatic. My whole life was centered around football. Unfortunately, I lived in a town in Oklahoma, and if you ever have lived in Texas and Oklahoma, you realize how rare this is. Ours was one of the only towns that didn't have a football team. We only had 180 students from kindergarten to 12th grade, but even schools that small would at least have a six-man football team, but not our town. We didn't have a football team, but I still loved football. I remember reading cover to cover the encyclopedia, uh, for those of you who are too young to remember, it's kind of like Wikipedia, but in book form. And so, so I would, I, I read the, the F, the letter F, you know, they're divided up by letters. And I read the entire letter F, partly just because it had football in it. And, and I read the whole thing about football. If I got to go to the library, I wanted, you know, books about football. My heroes were, you know, football guys like Roger Staubach and Tom Landry and people like that. I loved football. I wanted to play football. Um, didn't have opportunity. My, um, I, I talked about football a lot. My, um, you know, I even, you know, was so desperate to play football that I would actually play with um, my sister. And just so you know, my sister, Kinda understood football, but I think she liked football because cute guys play football. But, so she would play, she would say, "You know, sometimes we'd go in our yard and throw the ball, and she'd say, I wanna be the hutter. And we're like, what's the hutter? Nobody knows what the hutter is. And the hutter apparently was the center because the quarterback stands behind the, the center and says hut, hut, so that was the hutter. So we're like, okay, here's the hutter. But I talked about football all the time. It really, until I was about a sophomore in high school, I mean, it was, it was the center of my life. It's, it's what I cared about most. So I was a Christian, and, you know, and I was a good student, and all this other stuff, but I talked about football. When I was bored in class in high school, which was often, <coughs> um, I wrote football plays. That's what I wrote, and I made up plays in my, on my notes. If I could find those notes, you would see plays. I developed an offense when I was like, Sophomore year, I still haven't seen anybody use the offense yet, so maybe I can, maybe someday I'll become an NFL coach and run my offense. But I talked about it a lot because it's so important to me. And that kind of reminded me about something, about what do we talk about? What do we talk about the most? And in fact, not just, not just what do we talk about with each other, you know, that's one thing. You know, and when we're talking with each other, how much of our talk is about God and about the things of God and about what it means to live the Christian life and and how we can make a difference in this world for Christ and advance his kingdom? You know, there's that side. But then there's also, what do we talk about with God? When we pray to God and we pray for ourselves or we pray for other people, what do we talk about? Because I have a suspicion that just like how football was so important to me when I was younger, that what we talk about with God is what we really value. What we talk about with God is where our focus really is. Oh, we might say it's in other places. If someone presses us with a question, we may say like, oh, no, no, it's other things. We might say things like, no, I just, I just, I just want to serve God. I just want to do his will. I just want to learn more about him. But is that what we pray about? How many of you woke up this morning and said, God, teach me today. Teach me today. Show me something old in a new way. Or show me something new. Remind me of something I've forgotten that I need desperately today. How much of that is in our prayer? If you remember... When when Al read the Lord's prayer, not the last time he read it in pigeon, but this time when he read it with a pigeon accent, but in English. Um, when when you look at that prayer, what is prayed for first? It's not "Give us our day, our daily bread." That's what we all want to rush to in our prayers. We want to talk about, oh, you know, God, you know, take care of my needs. Or take care of the needs of my friend. My friend is sick. You know, my friend is, is um, you know, lost their job, doesn't have enough money, having relationship problems, or I'm having these things. And we want to rush over there, and we want to spend, you know, 90% of our time, if not more, praying about all those things. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with praying about those things. Jesus tells us to pray about them. But here's what's wrong. What's wrong is when we rarely or never pray about the things that matter most. How does Jesus start his prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How much of our prayer is centered around saying, God, how can I advance your kingdom today? How can I advance your kingdom in this moment? How can I understand more about what that means? What can I do? What can you teach me? What we talk about most is what we value most. You know, I kind of likened it to, I was trying to think of a, an analogy, and it's probably not a great one because I just thought of it, but, but I was trying to think like, you know, let's say we're, 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 we're all in the army and we're about to go to, a, we're in the middle of a battle. and And... You know the the officers are you know sh- you know shouting out things, uh, enemies coming, planes are flying overhead, and then and then just when you're about to you know do what you're supposed to do, you know you you get a splinter, and you forget about the battle, because this really hurts, and while everybody else is running around and the enemy's coming forward, you're like, oh, man, this splinter hurts. I got to get it out. I want to focus on this splinter, on this splinter. And, and you sit there and you, and you and so focus on pulling the splinter out that you've totally forgotten that there's a war going on. I think that's one of the problems we have, not just in our church. And I'm not even saying you do this. You may not do this. But I'm saying among Christians in general, our focus has become so much on the splinters in our lives that we've forgotten that there's a war going on we've forgotten that there's something so much bigger than ourselves. That's the mystery. That's the mystery that Paul told the church. And see, we, we, we understand the mystery now. We've lived with the mystery for 2,000 years that we don't think it's a mystery, but I sometimes ask myself, do we really understand it? Do we really understand that what god is calling us to be what he's calling us to do is so needed so great so awesome but also so difficult because if we if we really understood that this uniting of the of the jew and the gentile the breaking down of the walls the bringing together of the people that that rev- revelation of that great that great mystery that we can be one under the lordship of Jesus Christ, if we understood how that is the only hope for a world that's destined to be either either taken over by some totalitarian government, or it's destined to destroy itself as it fractures, if we understood that's the only hope, we would pray about it all the time. And if we understood how difficult it is or how impossible it is without Jesus Christ, it would always be on our minds. Paul's just told the church this great mystery. He's just said there's only one true God. And he's not even the God of the winners, in fact, he's the God of those losers, those people who got conquered. He's not the Roman God. He's this, this people that Paul would have probably had to explain to people who these people were. There were probably many people who go, what? Palestine? Judea? Jerusalem? What is that? They wouldn't have even known. He would have had to explain to them. And they would have said, it's their God. Their God is not really their God. He's the God of all incredible mystery. And in fact, this God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And he sent his son not just simply to forgive us of our individual sins, not just to, to, to make our slate clean, but he sent his son into the world so that he would save the world. That he would unite the world. He would unite all in the world who are faithful all in the world who are faithful to Jesus Christ, all who believe, all who receive him as Lord, he will unite them regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of anything else that would divide us. But before he goes on and he says, this is what it's gonna look like, this is what it'll look like in the church, he says, I need to pray. In verse 14, He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you because, yes, you know the mystery, but you don't yet know really how important it is, and second, how difficult it will be. Because you're going against everything. You're not just going against everything In the world. You're not just going against everything that's that that's in culture that might oppose the things that Christians believe and hold to be true. You're warring against everything within you. What's in your DNA. And your DNA is, is, is not to serve others. It's not to place other people's lives above your own. That's not in your DNA. In your DNA, it's about surviving. It's about protecting, if anyone, protecting those who are most like you and those who are closest to you. That's what it's about. It has to go against even that. It goes against everything that we are, everything that we find in our world. We need prayer. And so Paul says... that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's praying here. And he's praying just like Jesus prayed. He's praying for the kingdom and he's praying for what's necessary for this mystery to be revealed. And the first thing that he prays for is he is he prays that they would be strengthened with power through the spirit. This isn't just fancy words to say, "Hey, do better." This isn't just fancy, you know, Bible Christian words to say, "Try harder." he's actually saying what we've been saying all along, is that Christianity is, is the only faith system that I know that admits up front that it is impossible to do on your own. We need the Spirit. You see, when we talk about the Holy Spirit and you know, in church and in our lives and things like that, a lot of times people want to focus on, on gifts and manifestations of, of things, whether it be, you know, supernatural healings or prophecies or tongues and all of these other things. But really, really, the most important gift that the Spirit has for us, the most important role, is not really a gift or a job. No, the most important role is is a power that holds us together. That unites us in a way that we would not otherwise unite. That holds us together even though someone has deeply offended us and we don't want to have anything to do with them, holds us together. Holds us together even though someone is so weird, so different, so strange. They eat gross foods. They got weird customs. Holds us together. Supernatural. It's supernatural so much that that even your former enemies can be part of your family. This most important gift is love and the unity that only comes from God. Paul prays that that would happen. You know, some people say like, oh, um, you know, pastors say certain things, and they don't really mean it. They say it because, you know, it's the situation. But when I tell you that I don't care how big our church is, I really mean it. I don't care if there's 12 people here. I don't care if there's 1,000 people here. What I would hope is someday to prove to you that I, this is true not because there's 12 people here, but because there's 1,000 people here. That if there are 1,000 people here, if we have two, three, four services, but we are not marked by the Spirit, we're not united by His love, we're not so much a community of grace that, that, that God's love is so abundant among us that I will call us out to the point of driving away as many as we need to drive away to become that community. Yeah, it's easy to say now, right? That's what I believe. I believe that we're not the church if we're not united by his love, by his spirit. We're not the church if that's not so apparent in our lives and how we treat one another first. That's how we look at if a church is growing. I can't measure that. I don't have a, you know, a loveometer, right? I don't have any way of measuring how much love you have or how much faith you have or how much grace you have. So it's hard, and, you know, especially those of us who kind of moderns growing up in the 20th century, we like to measure everything, and we hate things we can't measure. In fact, we want to pretend they don't exist. They do exist. Can you measure the spirit? I can't. But Paul's prayer is that they will be powered by the Spirit. And he says that this empowering, the reason you're going to be strengthened, the reason you're going to be empowered, is that that will result in Christ living in your hearts through faith. And what he's saying here, I think, is really important. He's trying to help you understand that faith isn't just simply, I have knowledge about who God is, I have knowledge about who Jesus is, and I believe it. What he's saying is, if you really have the spirit that comes together with your your understanding and your belief, you will know Christ's presence in your life. It is something you can experience. It's not something for some day, some, you know, in the future, maybe you know, after I die. No, you can know it now. You can know it now. We can know this. Unfortunately, sometimes to really know it, sometimes to really distinguish it, it takes extreme situations. I'm going to tell you as a teacher, and because I don't teach in high school anymore, I guess I can say this. I really like good students more than I like bad students. But good students can never really prove how good a teacher I am. Good students could probably have learned just as much if you just give them some books and some videos. How good of a teacher am I? Ah, It's when I can help that student who's not very good, who's not very disciplined, doesn't come from a great home and doesn't have any sense of self-confidence and and doesn't really know. You wanna know how powerful God's presence in your life is? Well, as long as you live in a kind of a comfortable, safe area, as long as you never take risks, as long as you never start to build relationships and engage with people who are different from you and and a little strange or maybe even um, don't like you, until you're in those relationships, you never know. It doesn't mean you aren't. If I would have been blessed with, with you know, all students who are super motivated and intelligent and great work habits, people might have said, you're a great teacher. But inside, I would have known, I don't really know that. Maybe I am, but I don't really know it. How do we know? How do we know is, is when we're put in situations where it's tested, where we're revealed. You want to know if you're patient? You need to be around people who try your patience. You want to know if you're kind? You need to be around people that you really don't want to be kind to and maybe don't deserve kindness. You want to have you know if you have grace? Well, you need to be offended. You need to be around... People who will do things that will hurt you. I don't mean going out of your way to trying to get hurt, but I mean living in such a way that you're not just around people who are safe and comfortable. We never know. But see, that's Paul's prayer. And see, that's how this kind of goes hand in hand this presence of Christ and faith because people have used this analogy before. They'll say like, you had faith that that pew would hold you up and you sat in it. But that's not real faith. Real faith would be if I told you I built this new chair, it's right here. You can't see it, but I can. Can you come up here and sit in it? That's real faith. It's not faith to say, I see a chair. I see other people sitting in the chair. I can sit in it. It's faith when I've reached a point where I don't see how this is possible. In fact, I either think or I know it's impossible. That's when faith is needed. You see, as, as long as we live in a safe Christianity, in a safe world, in a safe church, we don't really need faith. Because it's all stuff that we've lived with for years and we trust it because it's, it's there and it's, you know, it's what we understand and it's safe. You see, you need faith when you're going to stand on the very edge of life. You need faith when, when you're not going to try to keep your enemies as far away as possible, but when you're going to get right up here and you're going to hug them. That's when you need faith. And so we walk around saying we have a strong faith. What you really have, if you say I have a strong faith, is that, is that you, you believe in something you will never stop believing in. But the reason you believe in it It's because it's never been pushed or it hasn't been pushed recently. Faith is always growing. We need to be in those places where we're stretched and it's impossible. But understand this he says the empowering will result in Christ living in their hearts through faith. And having Christ in your hearts, he's praying that that will root them in love. Paul always comes back to love. And it's not an accident. And again, we're not talking about what the world says love is. We're not talking about some kind of, kind of like sophomoric, emotionalism, kind of nebulous, good feelings. We're talking about this, this insane kind of love, this love that, that, that loves the loveless, that that loves your enemies, that loves people that cannot help you and cannot do anything for you. They don't even make you feel good about loving, but you love them anyways. No, that's not the recipe for a healthy uh, marriage, okay? Just understand, it's a different kind of relationship. But as Christians, if we truly have God's love in our lives, that's how we love, and it really knows no end. You see, everything comes back to love, and, and here's why, and I mean, it's because I think love is something that we cannot define, but we can, we can experience it, and we kind of know that it's happening. And I think when we talk about theology, what we believe, and we think about faith, I think when our reality, our actions, our experiences touch our theology, what happens is love. True love. God's love. You see, if anything else happens, if I claim to have great understanding of who God is, and that does not lead me to these, these Experiences in my reality of love, then I don't really know who God is. I know facts about God, but I don't really know who God is. I remember this guy, a uh, high schooler, and remember I grew up part of my life in a very redneck part of the world, and and my dad was the pastor, and he was doing. Um, RAs, Royal Ambassadors, kind of the Baptist equivalent of Boy Scouts. And so they had, like, for the older kids, they had some survival things. And, and this guy really wanted to impress my dad. And so I still remember being there. I was probably, like, seven or eight years old. And uh, he's, this guy's in high school. And he comes to the class, and he had cut himself. He had cut his leg because we were studying first aid. And he thought my dad would be really happy that he had a real wound to work on. Of course, my dad's like, uh, that's not the way we learn first aid, guy. But he thought he was doing what he was supposed to do because he didn't really understand. He didn't really understand my dad. He didn't really understand you know, what it was to really learn these things. And he took action. And I think that's what happens. I think what happens to us is that we kind of understand God, but then it often leads to wrong actions. But let me tell you, the Bible tells us God is love. No matter what you learn about God, it always leads back to love. And if it doesn't lead to a greater love for God and a greater love for others, you have to ask yourself, do I have the whole picture? Do I really understand God? But notice what he's saying here. He's not saying we just want to be sprayed with love. We don't, he's not saying we just want to have like um, you know, like a love option. You can you can have love if you want, but you you know you don't have to have it. You can just kind of be a generally nice person. You know, it's no, it's not an add-on. He uses the word root. That they'll be rooted in love. That love will feed them everything that they do. Love is the foundation. Love is what makes them healthy. He's going to talk more about this in the next chapter. But make no mistake. Just like they say, all drains flow to the ocean, all theology flows to love. So being rooted in love, what will that do? Being rooted in love will help them understand the unknowable love of Christ. So love does lead to actions and what those actions are It depends. It depends on who's being loved and the situations. We're not sure. All we know for sure as Christians is that we have no choice but to love. But the choice comes in in how we express that love. But it's not simply actions. It's not simply expressions. There's also a knowledge that comes from love, but it's a special knowledge. Because if I were to ask you a question, And and I'm trying to find out what you know. And you tell me, I can't put it in words. Now, if I was teaching a class and a student wrote that on all the answers, right? I know this stuff. I just can't put it in words. What grade is this student going to get, right? They're going to fail. But Notice what's being said here. That being rooted in love, you can know the unknowable. doesn't seem to make sense. And the only way I can kind of sort it out is that you will know things that you cannot put into words. You know it, but you can't really express it. Kind of amazing when you think about it. But I will tell you this, in those moments in my life, and I wish there were more of them, but unfortunately there's only a few, when those moments in in my life, when I really feel that that I have not just received this supernatural love of God, but I've also been put in situations where I I have expressed it and shown it to others, I'll tell you, I learn something from those things, but I can't necessarily tell you. I think this is one of the reasons that we, we walk this path alone in a way, or we must all, not alone, but we must all walk it. No one can walk it for us. Because there are some things that we as human beings cannot communicate to one another. You can only know these things by experiencing them. Only when you experience the being rooted in the love of Christ can you know these things. I can talk about them. I can tell you what I think I know, but it's going to be limited. And I'm good with that. I'm good with that because I would like to think that my God is bigger than my brain. I would like to think that my God is bigger than what my brain can understand. I would like to think that my God is one that I can tell you a lot about, but I can't even come close to telling you everything. Well, but what is the point? What is the point in knowing the unknowable if I can't communicate it? Well, look at what he says at the end. He says that knowing the unknowable love of God, he says that that will result in being filled with God. That will result in being filled with God. I was listening to a, um, a baseball game yesterday, and they had this really good baseball player from a few years ago, um, and he was he was really good hitter, but apparently he was a very bad coach. And the reason he was a bad coach is because he didn't understand what he was doing, he just did it. He couldn't put into words what he was doing to tell somebody else, he just did it. And so his advice to when he was coaching was, okay, you pick up a bat and you see a ball coming and you hit it. That was his advice, pretty simple, not very helpful. Why could he do it? Because he was very gifted. He had this natural ability to do it. He was filled with hitting a baseball. But that's not how most of us are. And we're certainly not that way with God. We have to know But I think there's a point when we get to this place where we can't really put into words. We have that unknowable part, and that fills us. To the point that someone can say, "How, how did you respond to that person who is being so rude and hateful to you? How did you respond to them with such humility and grace? And you're like that baseball coach. I don't know. I just did it. How can you, you know, how can you just go and, and live by faith? Can you show me how I can live by faith like you are? And, and you're like, no, I can't. It's unknowable. You have to get there. You have to experience it. I tell people this about Haiti. You know, Haiti is... is the most impoverished country in the Western Hemisphere. And, and it's not even third world. It's like fourth world or less. And I, after the first year, I tried to tell the students who would go about it. And finally, I told them, you, I, I can tell you, but no matter what I tell you, it won't even come close to what Haiti is really like. Can I, I can try, but it's, you have to experience it. And sure enough, when they would go, they would all say, you're right, you, you tried to tell us these things and we just didn't really get it till we were here. We had no idea what it was like to arrive at the airport and have strangers run up to you and try to grab your bags. We had no idea what it's like to, to take a hundred mile journey by car and take 10 hours. We have no idea what that's like. We have no idea, idea what it's like to, to get off, off a long trip on a plane and jump in the back of a truck and be standing in the back of the truck with 15 other people driving through a town where they seemed to be totally disregarding any traffic laws. Couldn't, couldn't fathom it. And they couldn't really understand how these people with nothing, living in this, these, these mountain communities with nothing, were happier than they were had to be there. That's why God keeps pushing us out of the nest. He says, don't settle. Keep moving. Because that's where you're going to know me. When you stretch yourself. When you live on the edge of your faith. And I also think knowing the unknowable, what really helps me is knowing the unknowable, once I kind of came to you know grips with that, it, it doesn't take away my confidence in what I know, but it always makes me want to listen to what other people know. And it keeps me humble because I know what I don't know is so much more than what I do know. I think when we acknowledge that there's this unknowableness, it doesn't make us feel special. Instead, it makes us feel humble. And if God is gonna fill our lives, if God is gonna fill our church, we need as much humility as we can. Pride is what stands in the way of God's filling. And understand that pride is not just boasting. Pride manifests itself in two ways. One way, you say, God, I'm awesome. I'm smarter than you. I got this. Leave me alone. I can do it. We all know that's pride. But pride manifests us in another way, where it says, you know, God, I don't really think even you can use me. I don't think even you have anything for me to do. I think my weaknesses and my failings are too much even for you. It's just as much pride. It's a false humility. When we know the unknowable love of Christ, we become humble. So what do we talk about? What do we pray about? Well, if God's kingdom is what matters most, that's what we should be focusing on. A good chunk of our prayer should be focusing on how we can help do our part to advance God's kingdom. How we can at least love each other better, forgive each other more, extend grace to one another. How we can make this life, even our Christian life, less about ourselves and more about God and more about others. We have to pray about these things and not only pray about our daily needs. You see, God reveals the mystery. Paul reveals the mystery. The Ephesians take that revelation, and now they reveal the mystery to the world. But as I said, people don't, still don't understand it. They take this huge mystery, they take this incredible work of God, What he says, this is my main project. It wasn't creating this wonderful universe. It was creating and establishing a kingdom. And they they take that, and they make it something so much smaller. It's kind of like if I told you, what if I invented, what if I invented something that at, at the tip of your fingers, you would have access to all the information in the world? You could communicate with people all over the world. And if I told you, I can invent that, and I can give it to you. And then you go, oh great. And then you use it to do this. Show us the slide. You take this powerful device and you use it to watch cat videos and make memes. Again, nothing wrong, well, there is something wrong with cat videos, but um, okay, there's nothing wrong with cat videos, nothing wrong with memes, right? The problem is you have this powerful tool that was supposed to make everything better, to sm- supposed to make learning better, supposed to give us more access to make us more efficient, and we use it in a very small way. Understand this great revelation from God, this great mystery, that it's to be used in a great way, a way far beyond ourselves.